2: Telling you, bro, what's been happening, bro? Uh, Not too much. Still hitting more Peggy O's.
3: time to present in Louisville Harold Bradley and his guitar.
2: Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in again. My guest today is a legend in the history of Nashville and a member of the original A-team of session musicians that created the Nashville sound, Mr. Harold Bradley. He is one of the most recorded guitarists in history, if not the most. He has session logs and union contracts that show all this stuff. He He's played on thousands of recording sessions, but not just any old sessions and songs. I'm talking about some of the most iconic and timeless songs of all time, like Patsy Cline's Crazy, Roy Orbison's Only the Lonely, "Crying," Tammy Wynette's Stand By Your Man, Loretta Lynn's Coal Miner's Daughter, so many, many others. But not just country, Harold lent his giant musical thumbprint to... Elvis Presley, remember Burl Ives have a holly jolly Christmas every time Frosty the Snowman comes on? That's Harold. Battle of New Orleans, the intro and banjo? That's Harold. Brenda Lee's Jingle Bell Rock and Rock Around the Christmas Tree? On and on. In the 60s, Harold recorded three solo records, one of which you're you're listening to a track from now, and they're entitled Misty Guitar, guitar for lovers only and bossa nova goes to nashville and 50 years later they're still just gorgeous to listen to they're musically amazing harold's playing some great chord melody and um, all of this stuff was just impeccably arranged back then his brother was the legendary producer owen bradley and along with owen they were the original architects of country music they opened the first studio in what is now known as music row And uh, I met Harold many years ago. We worked together with the great singer, Slim Whitman. And I learned so many things from him that I think about all the time still. So I was just humbled and honored that he would take the time and come down and chat with me. And I asked um, our mutual friend, Andy Reese, great guitar player, plays with the Time Jumpers to sort of co-moderate. He's been friends with Harold for many, many years. Harold's now 92 years young. Great memory, as sharp as ever. He tells us these amazing stories. And uh, one little footnote I want to mention Harold, uh, you'll hear him mention a lot of people by first name. These were some of his, uh, the other, uh, the A team members that created all this sound together. And he's so humble, he doesn't like to give himself credit. He, he pe- he's very quick to pass on credit. But I know he regretted not having the list of all the names, but I have it, Harold, here it is. These were the original 12 people that were inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame as the original A-Team. So besides Harold, the other guitarists were Hank Garland, Ray Edmonton, Grady Martin, steel guitarist Pete Drake, fiddler Tommy Jackson, harmonica player Charlie McCoy, Bob Moore on bass. Pianist Pig Robbins and Floyd Kramer and drummer Buddy Harmon and saxophonist Boots Randolph. All right, here we are stepping into the Nashville Musicians Union and we're uh, reserved a room and we're sitting there chatting. So hope you enjoy. I'm sitting in Nashville, Tennessee, with legendary Harold Bradley and my other great friend, great guitar player Andy Reese, and we're at the Nashville Musicians Union. I haven't been in here in. It's, I think we rehearsed together with Slim Whitman eons oh, yeah. ago, but uh, but Harold, I just want to say I'm honored that you would do this, and thank you for taking the time. and uh, It's great oh. to see you after all these years, you know.
4: Well, Shane, it's great to see you, and uh, it's always great to see Andy. I have to be careful because he knows all my secrets. <laughs>
2: well, <laughs> hopefully, after this, other people will know your secrets. So, um, well, I hope so. And it's kind of special. I've never done one of these interviews with another kind of co-guest and Andy is sort of co-moderate with me I guess I don't know because I know you guys have been friends for so long so I just you know wanted to talk to you about your career I mean just a little backstory people listening when I first moved to Nashville I was I was probably 21 and one of the first gigs I got was with Slim Whitman and that was because of Andy here who graciously recommended me I was just a long-haired rock and roll guitar player (laughs) <laughs> if for some reason you liked me and, and hooked me up with some gigs and I got to, next thing I know I'm sitting next to Harold Bradley who's, you know, one of the most recorded, if not the most r- recorded guitar player in session history, you know, and we'll get to all that. Well, but,
1: say, can I just mention yeah. that? When I was new in Nashville, I met Harold Bradley and he recommended me for the Slim Whitman gig.
2: Wow. It's a generational thing. Right?
4: Took, took him to Europe. <laughs>
2: Well, I'll never forget a couple of things real quick, Harold. I was thinking back last night, making some notes, and I i don't know if you'll remember this, but one thing I remember was us flying to Jackpot, Nevada, because I guess Slim thought, well, I'll use this kid, but, you know, Harold's going to be there first to train him. And we did, um, what was that tune? Blue Moon in Kentucky, like two... Twin yeah. guitar, yeah. solo. Oh, yeah. And you had about six different kinds of picks on your pick stand <laughs> on the music stand, and you told me, "Now, when it gets to this, you need to switch to this pick because it's a different tone." And I was thinking, "I've never heard of such a thing," but I,
4: I'm still using that pick. Really? Yeah, it's it's, it's a cutout. Uh, was that the shark fin? The shark fin. Shark yeah. fin.
2: Yeah. And then I remember another time, I was telling Andy for lunch today, I remember flying with you once and we were sitting in adjacent aisle seats and this guy got up in the front of the plane, this long leather trench coat with a hat on, and you said, hey, Grady, Grady. And it was Grady Martin, another oh one gosh. of the original Nashville A-team. And I was just like, how could I be in this spot? So anyway, I remember all that stuff and I think about it often, you know. So, Well, I just want to show you this first. I'm pulling out this old... These old book of charts that I got from you. <laughs> Look at that. This is your this is your version of uh, Laura's theme. Oh, Al yeah. Brownlee, there's yeah. your old chart with all your meticulous. Uh, <laughs> Slim would change the arrangement every night and you would rewrite the chart. <laughs> yeah, we
1: we'll used to take bets on whether he'd go to the bridge or not.
4: Yeah. <laughs> right. Slim was a great talent and a great guy. I remember us working uh, the Corn Exchange in England and uh we were sitting there and uh crowd was a little buzzy you know and he walked up to the mic and he sang really softly Mm
3: -hmm.
4: and the place got so silent you could hear a pin drop i think you were there andy yes it was it was a real lesson to me because other people get up there and sing their guts out thinking singing loud is singing you know but it was a real lesson to watch a guy get up there and and a very nice, modulated voice, sing something really soft and tender, and everybody just quit doing what they were doing. Wow. It impressed me.
2: I got to go to England with him a few times. Yeah, it was, there was some early lessons. You
4: he know. had
1: a quiet charisma where he was one of those guys who walks into the room and everybody looks at him just yep. automatically.
2: Yeah. Yep, you're Right and some of those guitar parts that um, you played on the record how I had to learn via Andy and and, uh, I remember trying to cop some of those things and and I had a lot of chops but I didn't have necessarily a lot of finesse Slim would turn around to me and goes, it's so simple it's hard isn't it (laughs) (laughs) and that was a lesson
4: (laughs) that that was true, absolutely true I have a favorite guy behind me too Met him in 1949. He was my leader then. In fact, I moved from Florida to Nashville then, and we became very good friends. Part of it could have been he had a car, and I didn't. He's quite a musician. If you've heard a record, you've probably heard him on the record. He's been on 90% of mine. He would have been on the other 10%, but I did some here and some all over the world. His wife wouldn't let him fly and he couldn't swim, so he stayed home. He's moving up. He's coming in, and the show goes on. Here's Harold Bradley. Harold Bradley.
2: But Harold, you've you played with so many people and recorded. What, what was your first session you ever did in Nashville?
4: Well, let's back up. The first okay. record session that I ever did, period, was 1946 in Chicago with Pee Wee King, wow. because there were no studios in Nashville. Really. The next year, 1947, my brother called me and said we're going to do this jingle at Castle, who was the first uh, commercial recording studio in Nashville, and uh, so we went in, and uh, Snooky Lanson was the vocalist, and it was only bass, guitar, drums, and piano, and we did this jingle, and that was the first session at a commercial studio in Nashville.
1: Wow! It, where and was the castle then? It
4: was in the Tulane Hotel at Eighth uh, and Church, and uh, it was uh, the it used to be the ballroom. Directed disc. Wow! <laughs> they had a tape thing that they didn't believe in. It for sure that the Germans had uh, invented, but it was direct-to-disc. And uh, I got paid $17 for it. Wow. And my brother and I were starting uh, in the studio business. We had our first deal. And I'd uh, go home and play the radio, and I'd hear myself on the radio going home. And I thought, boy, I really made it. They uh, $17 and they played it for 17 years, you know? <laughs> <All> year. <laughs> But uh, really the most interesting one uh, was the one with Pee Wee King was Western Swing. And uh, I should have quit 10 because I, I think I played some, some nice things. I didn't know what I was doing at all. I must
1: go when I hear that whistle blow On the Tennessee Central number nine
4: I just out of the Navy. We hit a little band on the bass then. I I was a radio man. But we had a little band, and uh, we were just playing pop songs, but all of a sudden we were doing some stuff, and I had all the technique I needed because they, they play pretty fast, you know. But uh, uh, I should have brought you a copy of that, you know, because it was—
1: really I will get it. Who else was playing on that?
4: Well, uh, the amazing thing was the electric guitar was new, and he had a guy that played uh, fiddle and electric guitar, Red Stewart, who also wrote the Tennessee Waltz with him. Wow. But Red couldn't play them both at the same time. Wow. <laughs> so he hired me to just supplement the band. And uh, so I got to go, and uh, it took us two or three trips to do an album, you know. Hey,
1: the Southland Pole.
4: We to every night In 1943 my brother called me I wasn't doing much there wasn't much going on here in the town and, uh, he said uh, why don't you go on the road with Ernest Tubb this summer the Guitar guitar just quit with an ulcer and I said "What?" And not play that old corny country music that's exactly After playing
2: body and soul you yeah yeah that. i thought
4: i was above that and he said it'll do you good mm. I went on a road with him uh, to new orleans railroad the train standing up during the wow. war and somebody come by selling sandwiches there once well finally got there but uh, i learned uh, uh, a lot about country music i learned to appreciate it and uh, Ernest and I were lifelong friends. I played on a lot of his records later on. Mm. But uh, now I didn't, uh, I didn't appreciate country music. Cause I really didn't... There wasn't that many people playing electric guitar. When I was playing in 1943, uh, I was kind of a freak because I was 17 and I'm playing electric guitar, which is a new instrument to people, you know. And uh, it was... Uh, I didn't think anything about it. It was just great fun.
3: Mm.
4: But back then, uh, if anybody made a mistake, start all over again. You know, and that wasn't too bad if the record's only two minutes and thirty seconds. Right. But when we were doing transcriptions here with Owen's uh, thirty-five-piece band, uh, radio band, if the trumpet player blew a note, the announcer blew a note, the singer blew a note. Uh, they, they called a, a 15 minute break and everybody cried, Went had a cup of coffee came back, it didn't matter where you were in the transcription if you were 30 minutes in uh, then you to start at the top so that was <laughs> so being able to uh, not do that was a blessing but that's one of the reasons the A team the 12 guys I've worked with were around a long time is because We had to memorize the songs. We didn't have any music. This was before the number system came to be in Nashville. And uh, we could do that at the same time that the singer was giving his top performance. Right. And so I think that's one of the reasons A-Team was around for a long time. Once we settled in, those 12 guys, uh, they they knew how to color inside the you know with the lines
1: Don't that tickle you
3: It's a wonder that the rag don't care the
2: way he makes it You were doing sessions and, and at the peak, you were doing sessions around the clock, right? Didn't you I hear once that you were, you'd were sleep in the studio and start over a couple of times? It was How many sessions were you doing a week?
4: Well, uh, I wish I'd have brought that up uh, because I showed you some of uh, my logs. I've got some of them uh, going way back. But uh, what you're talking about, Tommy school on the West Coast, was always uh, listed in Guitar Player magazine as the uh, most recorded guitar player, and then Rich Kinsel up in the northeast. I've never met him. Told him, said so you better be careful. This guy down in Nashville may be the most recorded guy. So they sent a guy here, and he looked at my logs. Mm-hmm. He said, "Well, yeah, you are the most recorded guitar player at that time, whatever it was, because Tommy Zadisko couldn't do." more than like a couple of sessions because of the geography. Couldn't go from studio to studio, uh, you know, to, to get two sessions a day. Mm-hmm. We did four sessions a day and occasionally we did five. and That's what you're talking about. Because an artist would come to the studio and say, uh, I got to cut this uh, session this week. And we said, we we'll are booked four sessions a day, you know, do it next week. Now I'm in Podunk next week. Can't do it next week. So we'd put a session in starting after we finished at 1 o'clock in the morning and uh, end up in the. Uh, I'd sleep in the drum booth. It saved me an hour going home, and an hour coming back. But we didn't do that all the time, but we did do it, and uh, it really wasn't that much fun. And, uh, it kind of prepared me for working with Elvis because I was looking in the logbook the other day, and uh, one of the sessions we did with him. Uh, we started 8 o'clock Sunday night, ended up 8 o'clock Sunday morning.
2: Elvis liked to work all night? Yeah, and he went and had
4: breakfast, went to sleep. I had breakfast, went and played a couple more sessions. Wow. <laughs> you know, uh, we, did, we did an album in that night, three sessions.
2: What was he like to work with, nice guy? He
4: was wonderful. Yeah, he was really nice. I really liked him. I did one song at... Uh, because there's a pecking order, and I respect that. My friend Hank Garland got hurt, and so I kind of um, moved in there. But I'm still like uh, the second or the third guitar player on the session, and uh, you really don't assert yourself if you're not the leader. You, you know, uh, you have Scotty, and I respected him because I love what he did. He was a real pioneer rock and roll guitar Scotty player. Scotty Watts, yeah. Yeah, he really was. And uh, so you're uh, careful about the suggestions you make or whatever, but uh, I uh, took Hank's place, I guess you could say, and I played the Tic Tac bass guitar on one of the first ones. And uh, later on, as the years went by, I walked into the studio one day, and I looked around, and it was Chip Young in me. And a Chip's a rhythm, great rhythm guitar player. So I knew it was me. We did a song he really liked called Indescribably Blue. And I'm playing the gut string guitar all over that. Mm. It's uh, like me and Elvis, you know. He's on my record. Oh, wow. <laughs> but he really liked it. And it's the only time that I really uh, got a chance to really assert anything with Elvis. Mm. Our friends all ask me
3: The last time I saw you Uh-oh.
4: I smile and tell them
3: I
2: mean, your memory is so sharp. I mean, you can remember these things, and it's like I'm there, sitting with you. I mean, if you you mentioned Roy Orbison, you want you got any Roy Orbison stories? Or?
4: Well, before him, let's let's try to start uh, back at the beginning. Okay. Patsy Klein. Yeah, obviously. I played all of all, all of her hits. Right. Uh, I played on all of her bombs. She it was ninety percent bombs until she had the hits, and uh, we did crazy, and. Uh, We didn't have any music, and uh, after three hours, she couldn't sing the song. After four hours, an hour overtime, my brother said, well, uh, don't use beating yourself up. She'd had an automobile wreck and broke her ribs, Mm -hmm. and it was one note that she couldn't hold out. Wow. And so uh, we made a track without any headphones, without her singing it. And I have to say that's a great track.
2: And that's what ended up being the classic
4: Yeah, track. and my brother said she came back within two weeks and sang it all the way through one time. He said, when she got through, neither one of us wanted to do it again. Wow. Uh, that, that was unusual. An hour over time, he did, only got a track, and we were very lucky because the stereo had just come in, but the middle track was open, and so her voice was in the middle track. The band split on each side, mm. and... uh uh, I, I view that in uh, crying is uh, some of the great songs that i played on absolutely
3: Crazy. I'm crazy for feeling So lonely.
4: skip Brenda Lee.
2: We don't have to skip anything. <laughs> you can talk about anything you want. <laughs> well, we got
4: her when she was about 11 or 12, and you ought to go back and listen to some of that early stuff. She's hiccuping and doing all kinds of stuff. I don't know who she could have been copying if she was, but uh, she was very talented, and uh, we feel like we raised her. We were doing a session one day, and uh, uh, we played the intro, and she didn't come in. My brother said, Brenda, what's, what's wrong? She said, the bass player missed a note. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we did I'm Sorry, which was a huge hit, and she still can hang her head on that. And uh, my brother didn't take credit. He wouldn't take credit for anything, but he actually did like one of the Inks Boss deals. There's no course on I'm Sorry. So he did a verse, and then he uh, modulated and uh, did a the verse, Then he modulated and did another verse. So, uh, and then he, she had some talking on there, some recitation, you know. Mm. And you listen to those early records, and uh, you'll hear that some of the groups that were doing them back then. Uh, no, I don't want to miss her.
3: sorry so sorry
4: that I was such a fool. and then uh, let's see uh, I, I guess we we'll move on to Roy Roy was a nice guy I never heard him raise his voice of course he started in wink Texas he went over to Memphis like three or four other guys did, and started there, and then came to Nashville and had their hits. I can't explain that uh, because we couldn't do that for one of the guys. But uh, all the other guys came over, and Roy did record some in Memphis. Then he came over here, and uh, I think the first session I played on with him was a hit. Only Only the Lonely. Wow, I didn't know you played on that. Yeah, played the Tic Tac bass guitar.
3: Only the lonely walk uh, I know the way I feel tonight. Yeah, yeah, okay. Only the lonely Dum dum to walk know this I, d- feeling ain't right. And
4: running, scared, Animatis, and running scared that Valero thing, cause it's just roarbus and I start that <laughs> Just run and Each place we go. But then, uh, crying, he came over and he said, Harold, I want you to play this. So he made a D chord, an open D chord, you know, ringing. Well, I was coming out of the orchestra, you know. So without thinking about it, I played one close, you know, pum, 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 pum. That's it, that's it. I didn't know that was it, <laughs> but he said, that's it, okay, okay. So Roy and the, Buddy Harmon, the drummer, and I start uh, crying, bum you know. And then he comes in, and uh, he's uh, Fred Foster had gotten him to write uh, this song in a bilateral beat, and uh, so it's just, Roy and I for, about 16 bars. I know long ways in there, because I have a wonderful guitar. It's a Stromberg that was built for me, and it has a very wonderful sound. I cherish those, and I cherish working with Roy because he was very calm. And he, when he was getting hits, he came in and he would have these ideas and tell us what he wanted us to play because he's a pretty fair guitar player himself. But uh, he never tried to play on the sessions, but he would show you things, you know. And during all the time that he was successful, he would come in, and that was uh, like his formula. But once he changed record companies, uh, and they started putting arrangers in, and uh, the last session I did with him was right across the alley. And uh, Jerry Kennedy produced it. And we started out writing a number system, you know, and we wrote down the song. And uh, then we started playing it, and then he would skip, um, uh, two, uh, I mean, two or three beats here. So, like that, I wish I had that chart. And then uh, we got through and uh, finally got it recorded. But that wasn't the way he worked when he was successful. Mm. Uh, He knew exactly what he wanted and uh, how he wanted it, and... uh, but to come in and just randomly start off the cuff and then bring in an arranger. What's so strange about the hits that he had was on Crying, Running Scared, and uh, Only the Lonely. Three different arrangers. And I thought that was remarkable. It was Anita Kerr, Jim Hall, and I can't remember the other guy's name. Uh, The guitar player was here. I'm sorry, I can't remember his name because he deserves the deserves credit. But yeah. the bio, and you'll find his name there. I, th- I just think that's remarkable that uh, they could, once they got the sound,
3: mm-hmm. it,
4: one of them, somebody knew what they wanted. And Blue Bayou, I mean, nobody's come along to take his place.
2: Right. Classic voice. Hello. Uh, for those listening, tell, tell me if I'm wrong, but the way I understood a tic-tac bass is that it was originally, because the, you couldn't reproduce the sound of an upright low end on the speaker, so you would reinforce it with a, like a, uh, you know, play with a pick, and it would double the bass, is that right?
4: Well, yes. Uh, what happened was in 1958, Hank Garland went down to Strobel's Music Store and came to a session, he brought this strange looking instrument. It was a black one. And, uh, we tried different, uh, gradient, uh, I think they played on sessions before I did. And then, uh, it's really a six string guitar, you know, with, right. but it's also a, a four string bass on the bottom with two extra strings above that. Uh, it's a weird instrument, uh, very poorly made, won't tune, no way to tune. You just have to tune whatever key in with the bass. And uh, the fortuitous thing that uh, I did was I put my hand over the bridge and it got a note, it got a click, and my brother loved it. He used it until he died on his last session. He liked it because on the transistor radio when the bass would drop out, in the early days, you still have a, a, a note. And you'd have that click. And with the, uh, the click like that, I had uh, studied bass in college, so I had the left-hand position, kind of a triad, you know, triangle. Mm-hmm. So I kind of had that in my mind. And we started working on the bass lines, and you can double the bass and then also because it, having that click and then a higher register, you can play a lot of extraneous uh, other notes that uh, you couldn't get away with. If you did it on the bass, it mm-hmm. sounded like a cannon going off, but mm-hmm. you could play on. it was. It took a while for Bob Moore and I to uh, get together, the bass player, who did the most sessions here. And I give him a lot of credit uh, for one thing that he did, uh, he wouldn't let you uh, change keys without playing the tonic twice or like mm-hmm. whatever key you were in. Right. Before you, know, you like approach to a four-chord. C, chords, G, C, C, F, yeah. F. You know, he he established that because the bass players before they played tonic and fifth everywhere.
2: It's it wishy-washy. <laughs> and
4: and the bass would drop out. The early records we had, it would drop out complete on some notes because they weren't as good a player and. The bass wasn't as even. Players even now in F sharp, right. G flat, whichever you prefer. It's pretty rowdy when you get in that key for upright bass players. <laughs> <laughs> and when you play C, you know, on the third string, and then you play G open, it's boom, boom. It pings out like that, unless you've got some way of controlling it. And Bob Moore had a way of controlling it. He had it all even notes in D flat, uh, be fine. Didn't matter, and uh, that's a blessing.
2: <laughs> no. Is it Johnny Horton? Eighteen fourteen. We took a. Look. Didn't you play on that? I played the banjo. On you played that, the banjo on that.
4: And uh, unfortunately, that banjo was stolen as the greatest banjo I had. Couldn't replace it. But uh, there's one thing about that. Uh, well, there's a couple things about it. I played it banjo tuning because I'd played it in Papa John Gordy's Dixieland band. Oh, the real So deal, it's played yeah. in banjo tuning, mm. and uh, because to play the notes that I'm playing, you'd have to play them up here, you know. But with the banjo tuning, what's the first one is an A, and uh, it's a lot higher, and mm-hmm. so it had it had a great sound uh, sonically. Uh, his records, I was listening to one of his uh, the other day that uh, sounded really great. It was uh, for, oh for the love of a girl, and uh, as you always do, you volunteer to play something. To, so I, I volunteered. I uh, uh, asked Don Law. I said, uh, "And Grady, I said, hey, I got this new instrument. What do you think about this?" It was a tipple, mm. ten strings, and they said, "Oh yeah, that sounds good." Well, it did sound good, but when I started trying to play that thing on the record, I'm holding all those strings down oh my god what have I done I don't have any calluses for 10 strings you know but I got through it and then you know thought about throwing it away but it was stolen before I could throw it away <laughs>
1: took a little trip along with Colonel Jackson down to mighty Mississippi. We took a little bacon and we took a little beans and we caught the bloody British in a town in New Orleans. We fired our guns
0: and the British kept coming.
1: There wasn't as many as there was a while
2: ago. What kind of equipment, did you bring your own amps to the, did they have house amps back then at these studios or what were you using on all these sessions, Harold?
4: <laughs> well, when I came out of the Navy, I was playing through a Bogan PA set and for, I drove by the nightclub on the school bus one morning, and it had burned down. But I took my guitar home. I didn't take the amp. So back then, right after the war, they didn't have make amps. But, uh, no, we had to carry amps, And uh, but it didn't have any effects, no echo, no tremolo, nothing like that, you know. It was only when uh, Ray Butts put the tape slap back in Chets amp and Scotty Moore's amp the
1: echo sonic
4: amp. Echo sonic wow. as opposed to the echo Phonic. you got it and and uh we weren't the lucky ones no effects no effects rack you know uh no echo no nothing like that it would just plug it in and play it you know and uh that bar pickup still sounds pretty good <laughs> <laughs> talking
1: about his Gibson ES one fifty with the Charlie Christian
2: pickup. That's yeah. in this this interview you're talking about that that uh, little guitar player magazine I was reading. Yeah. You, so you still have that guitar. Yeah, I do.
4: I bought it from Billy Bird. <clears throat> it's a great sounding guitar even now.
2: You still have your Ventura? Yeah, I do. I remember that guitar. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I do have that one. Yeah.
2: And then you had one called a Bradley.
4: Yeah. The Japanese uh, thought that was a famous name, I guess, so they put some out like that for a while. Actually, it was a a pretty good guitar, and uh, it wasn't as heavy as the Les Paul. Uh I I couldn't play Les Paul standing up. It's so heavy. (coughs) But it was lighter.
2: I also love that track, the, uh, the Leon Russell when he had his pseudonym, uh, what was it, uh, Hank, Hank Wilson? Hank Wilson's Wilson. back. Rolling in my sweet baby's arms. You played on that too, right?
4: Well, that's a, a good story too because uh, uh, we did it at Bradley's barn, my brother's barn, and uh, he he actually spliced that cut. Wow. Yeah, we did it slow. And then we did uh, like some uh, faster version with uh, Charlie McCoy, somebody playing the harp, took him back to Tulsa, Oklahoma, wherever he was, and spliced them together. Wow. And uh, uh, it, it sounded great; it was perfect, you know. But when we left the studio, it didn't sound like that. <laughs> I think, uh, I think a lot of the people uh, kind of bought into the, the notes that we were playing, the run ups da ta ta different things like that. Although oh, Archie Byer said, Floyd Kramer, uh, play that. And then he said, well, oh, it clashes with the pickups. Well, if it's down low, it doesn't clash with anything. <laughs> but we didn't bother to try to educate Archie Blair, you know, so we didn't play the pickups, and it sounded weird to us, because that's the way we were leading the singers in. I see. You know? <laughs> oh, it it was, it was a marvelous time because we were, we were making it up. We're well, not sure what we were doing, but uh, after a while, we did know what we were doing with different artists, because they say the Nashville sound no, it's plural, Nashville sounds because Ernest Tubb had his sound, Brenda had her sound, uh, different people had their sounds, you know, and when the radio came on with the intro, you'd say, Well that's Ernest Tubb, or you'd say, Well that's Brenda Lee, or you'd say it's Patsy Klein. But uh, I don't think it's that way now. It's a uh, we've lost the country music art form, but that's another debate. Fry, 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 fry. take for instance my brother mm. somebody asked him why didn't, you, why didn't you sign your own brother he said oh I wouldn't let him do those old standards like that it's the only time I know he was wrong because actually on the strength of those three albums I gave you
2: your three records it's Mystic Guitar um, Guitar for Lovers Only and the Boss and Over Goes to, to national.
4: I was number nine in uh, 1966 Wow! in the billboard poll, and without without doing anything i didn't plan on going on the road i couldn't take that orchestra with me right but i started with floyd kramer and that awful, awful tied with such a wonderful artist but uh my biggest kick was uh somebody brought me northwest orange airlines uh playlist you know and uh they had What's New in the Jazz category with Elephants, You're going Basie. And that was a big kick, really, wow. it was. player I was trying to uh, more pop I think I guess is what you'd say but every, when I got to the session Bill McElhine the Ranger, had everything written out he heard me play you know and then he came over and he said oh by the way Phil here as if I wasn't doing enough you know <laughs> and so I tried to play a few little jazz runs to keep everybody awake in between <laughs> playing the, the melody you know and also I heard a lot of guitar players and they were playing single notes And the orchestra working real hard. And then I heard Johnny Smith and I couldn't play what he did so I tried to play uh, f- full chords as much as I could, you know.
2: What are some of your favorite tracks off those albums? If you had to think about a few highlights, the ones that you really like.
4: Well, uh, the first track is uh, Theme from Exodus. It's... Uh, it's it's close to jazz, you know. It is a. That's what I was trying for with that. But there are two technical things in there that I really like. One's the Sugarfoot Rag on the twelve-string.
2: Wow, that's hard to play. Well, I no
4: overdubs on the three albums I did. No overdubs. Wow. But there's one called the Petite Waltz that I never want to play again. <laughs> uh, it goes da, da 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 da. And I was playing it just great, and then they put Grady where Andy is. And he's playing the thing we learned from Earl Ives. And it's not the same thing. It's uh, If you listen to it on the record, it's all over the place, you know. Put him there, and, you know. And I, I agonized, but I played it one time through, and I never want to try to play it again. <laughs> I asked Boots Randolph, I said, Boots, play this part with me. He said, I can't. Boots Randolph never said I can't uh, about anything. He was playing that little. That small horn, you know. And I said, Why? He said, There's no, no place for me to breathe. Well, Bill McElhatt went over to Bill Purcell, who was playing organ, wrote the part out. Bill Purcell sight read it and played harmony when I played it. Wow. <laughs> One time through, you know. Wow. <laughs> uh, now, hey, you have to admire a guy like that, you know, because, I mean, it, it, it wasn't a melody. I'm playing da 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 playing harmony to it. <laughs> so that's a uh, one that I'm, mm. I'm really proud of to get through it.
3: <laughs>
1: my favorite track on Misty guitars is your version of Alora.
4: Th- that's got some really... Hard things in there. That's one place where I do uh, play an octave, da da da, all the way down. It was hard.
1: That's beautiful.
4: That's well, beautiful. I was a That's fool, hard. fool to think I could do it in front of an orchestra, you know. But uh, you know, you get pumped up, and uh, I was just—I I love that cut, by the way. It's great. Thank you. I like it.
2: sessions with chet atkins like both of you playing together no like
4: that. no i worked for him i did play some sessions at his house that he did an album there i'm glad you mentioned shit because he's one of my favorite people this is my brother because uh, my brother is really the big daddy of the music business in nashville
2: Owen oh, bradley but, for those that yeah uh, right and uh, he and chet
4: were great friends they were competitors but they never thought of being competitors uh because they knew that uh, if one of them got a hit, like Perry Coleman not recording for years, coming down here and doing Dream on Little Dreamer, that it was gonna bring more business to Nashville. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were good businessmen too, you know, but they were great friends. But uh, they had different styles in producing. Owen had a group of guys he used uh, on the last session that he did, the ones that hadn't passed away. he, he got locked into uh, the A-team, and that's who he wanted and who he used, because he knew how to beat us up, you know. <laughs> and Chet was a different thing. Chet hired different people, and he got great results. But uh, I walked in one day, and uh, I think it was a Jim Reeves session, and we're standing around listening to the first song, and learning it, you know, kind of listening to it. And everybody gets ready to go, and uh, he says, uh, Oh, Harold, he says, uh, We really don't need another guitar on this. Go over and play vibes.
2: Wow. (laughs) Vibes. (laughs) Did you play vibes? Yeah. Well, uh,
4: I had just enough knowledge to play three notes, and we were playing three chords. (laughs) And he did that to Charlie McCoy and Boots Randolph, too, you know. (laughs) But here's what he would do. You'd you'd be playing, and sometimes he'd be in there practicing the classical guitar, and he'd push the playback. Yeah. and he'd know exactly what was going wrong. And then uh, other times uh, he'd be in the midst of us so when we learned the songs, and he would we'd do a playback. He said, uh, "Play something else." We said, "Okay." So then you'd play something you thought was really good. He'd come back out, and you'd say, "How was that?" He said, "Not bad." <laughs> 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 but you loved him for it because he was so nice. But. Uh, <laughs> They, they they got great results, I'll tell you. Both of them doing absolutely different oh, absolutely. methods.
1: Yeah.
2: Did you, I know you worked with Willie Nelson, but was that when Willie was here in Nashville in the early 60s, or was that later?
4: It was 1961, and my friend Joe Allison signed him, and I was his leader. And uh, we drove around trying to figure out what p- to put behind him you know, because of the way he phrased everything. So we figured the best way, uh, the best thing we'd do was stay out of his way. So we had uh, a couple of top ten hits. It was on Liberty Records, 1961, uh, got on other labels. He was on everybody's label. Chet recorded him and uh, didn't have any luck. Different people recorded him, but uh, there was a songwriter named Hank Cochran, who's an excellent songwriter. I'm not going to name all his songs because I can't. I went to a memorial service at his house, and uh, Jeannie Seeley got up and uh, talked to while. the singer Mm -hmm. from the Grand Ole Opry, a country singer. And uh, she said that uh, Willie and Hank met uh, somewhere, and uh, Willie said, well, I got it figured out. I write the positive, and you write the negative. I write, touch me, and you write, don't touch me. And and Hank said, well, you hear goodbye walls. <laughs> well, it was hello walls. Hello walls. He, that's, yeah, that, that's the he one he I'm turned talking it around. about. Yeah, he turned around. He turned I around. But hello walls. walls.
2: I know that tune, hello walls. That's, a that's Jordan Air singing on that stuff, probably. Yeah, hello. Yeah, that's hello. right.
4: Hello. Hello. <laughs>
2: nice to see you again.
4: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was one of her, uh, well, his early hits.
2: Did you play on that session, Hal? Did you play on that? No, I didn't.
4: Yeah. I think it was Farron Young. And it was been uh, Ken Nelson.
2: Wow. You, I don't know how you remember all this it. stuff. I can barely remember last week. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, It is really amazing. Wow.
4: Well, I have a little trouble uh, with some things. Well, I but basically, anything. I still remember a lot. Yeah. But uh, really, it all goes back to the song. If you don't have a song, don't go in the studio. Mm. I've tried to put uh, everything in the world uh, behind uh, singers that weren't to, uh, up to snuff, and uh, you can't improve it because it's the loudest thing you hear on the radio. <laughs> you play it in your car radio, and the voice is going to be... Loud. you can't. If you can't change that, then uh, you can't overproduce it. And really... You don't really have to sing in tune like Chris Christopherson on Why Me Lord proved that, you know. Mm-hmm. But you have to have the feeling, but you have to have the song. I
2: have to have the song.
4: You have to have the song. What's the secret of my success? It's uh, really the uh, guys that I was surrounded by, the A-Team, uh, so uh, the musicians. But then you have to put the singers first. It was never about me except on those albums. When you walk in the door, you you leave the ego there, and mm-hmm. you go in, and it's, I introduced, uh, gave Charlie McCoy his midday and for the Hall of Fame, going to Country Music Hall of Fame, and I said, uh, Charlie learned uh, right off what you have to do to be a session musician. The artist is always right. The artist is never wrong, mm. and that's what it is. ¶¶
2: wherever really I just I was listening the other day to um, a record
1: you did with one of your good friends Don Gibson and it was the album Gibson that, Guitars but, and yeah, Girls that's the one so that was you and
4: Johnny Smith and Hank Garland
1: wow and but it was all arranged it was all three part guitar stuff how it was, did that it come well, to it, be?
4: it was all written it was gut string guitars and Nita Kerr wrote it Ah. And uh, I don't know how Hank Garland learned it. I really don't. Unless Anita taught him the parts. Because he really couldn't read uh, very well at all.
1: But, but you were a good reader, and uh, Johnny Smith was obviously a good reader. Oh, yeah.
4: Yeah. Johnny it was a beautiful guy and a great player. And we did that album, and then Hank got hurt. So they came back to do another album like that. And then... Um, it was Grady and me and Johnny. But Grady couldn't read it after one, the first session, he quit. Wow. And then uh, we brought in uh, the guy that I couldn't remember his name while i was going, I'm sorry, I can't, uh, because he could read it. And uh, he wanted to do, uh, well, he's played with our fingers. And I uh, mm-hmm. said, not up to that. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, Johnny played some beautiful solos on that. How did Johnny Smith come to be on that? I'm glad you asked that because uh, he and Chet had become friends. And about before Johnny died, about a year before he died, I called him and talked to him. And uh, we revisited that uh, session. He said that uh, there was one period in his life he cut part of his finger off or something that, uh, it hadn't been for Chet, he had, had a hard time feeding his family. Wow. But he and Chet were great friends, and actually, he let uh, Don arrange, I mean, uh, Johnny arrange something, I've never heard it, because they didn't release that uh, next album. They didn't release that one. I love Johnny, the uh, first time he was here, uh, we all went down to Carousel, uh, so you he could hear Hank and, uh, sit in, you know, and, uh, Hank was playing lights out, you know. And uh, Johnny wouldn't play for a couple of hours. And he finally got up and played. And uh, so we were doing the uh, second session. Secretary from RCA poked her head in the door and said, uh, Hey, he said somebody just called on the phone. I don't know if y'all are going to have another jam session down at the carousel like he did last time. And Johnny Smith said, not after the way Hank Garland chopped me up. <laughs> wow. How can you not like a guy like that, you know? Yeah. He, was, he was beautiful. He really was I'm
3: just a riffwood
4: on the river
3: floating down the tide. I don't care where this or
4: Too, because he recorded people that had talent, but he knew they weren't going to make it. But uh, he recorded, or he had somebody else like Danny Davis record him. And I'm thinking of uh, Paul Buskirk, ended up being Willie Nelson's great friend. He was my friend when I played the Grand Ole Opry in uh, (laughs) 1940, 40, no, 1943. Yeah, with Ernest Tubb. Wow. We, Billy Bird was my mentor, and uh, he was hooked on uh, Charlie Christian. So, I'm starting out at 12 years old, and he's showing me Charlie Christian stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'll play rhythm behind him, and he'll hand me the guitar. you play, he didn't show me to hold the pick do anything. Just you play, you know. So uh, I learned a lot of that stuff, and uh, we'd play body and soul in the dressing room at the uh, Grand Opera. We taught it to one bass player. And I thought everybody knew that song. <laughs> I really did, you know, You know, and we'd play it. And then uh, everybody come in the restroom to listen. Paul Burskirk came in and played manly, and he could play it with us, you know. But it shows how ignorant you are when you're young, but I didn't know any better. You know, I just thought everybody knew that song, because uh, Bill had pushed it so much their thing because anytime you wanted a gym or anything like that, how about Body and Five Flats? <laughs>
1: I've talked to Billy about the impact that Charlie Christian had on him when he first heard him and how monumental that was. But but I'm curious, because a lot of people are really crediting Django Reinhardt now with being a large influence. Were you guys hearing Django at that point in time?
4: Uh, no, not really. Uh, I heard him a little later, but I was never able to copy one lick off of Django. And... Uh, uh, Charlie Christian didn't copy anything off of Django. It's so different styles. Absolutely different.
1: What about George Barnes? Were you guys aware of him at all?
4: Uh, Yeah, because I heard him when I was just a kid. He played uh, Little Rock Getaway, clean as it could be. And that really impressed me you know, he was such a clean player.
1: Because George does, doesn't get a lot of credit, but he was a very active jazz electric guitar player around the same time Charlie Christian was.
4: I, in all honesty, I don't think he had the impact. No, he didn't. But uh, he was a technical genius. That's what I thought of him when I heard him play that. And uh, he, he was a great guitar player. You're right, he doesn't get enough, jazz, enough credit for being a jazz player. But Charlie had so much soul and everything. I mean, I, I remember I was still uh, part of the solo Rose room, room Billy and I learned a long time ago.
2: I'm going to ask you something maybe nobody's ever asked you before, but I'm just curious. Did, in all the sessions you've done, did you ever lose your temper or, or see somebody just storm out of a session, like a player? I mean, you seem like a, you've always been the most patient and professional. I'm just wondering if somebody, you don't have to name the artist, but... If it happened, like, did you ever just lose your cool and and just say, I'm out of (laughs) here?
4: No, you weren't allowed to do that. There were a couple of times that I hyperventilated. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I went to do this session, and I love the guy, the A&R man. Gut string guitar had everything. It started like, like this on the first three strings. It's called Dear God with Roy Clark. It started there, but... The guy playing it, Chris Gentry, wrote Dreams of an Everyday Housewife. He tuned the A string and the D string to different tunings. Oh. And, of course, A and Arderman didn't know that. And all of a sudden, I'm there, and that's what I'm going to play, you know, sooner or later. Right. But I did learn it, you know, and I played it with Roy, and and the changing the bass notes, was like just I did it perfectly took three hours for us to get that song. It wasn't me, it was uh, trying to put it together because the, the song really wasn't there. just started out with Dear God.
3: Dear God, I do promise never Possess, our home.
4: Let me be it's a love song, but it's a, not the kind of hillbilly love song we're used to. But actually, when I got through with that, I went to a session with Sonny James, like at 10 o'clock, and I was hyperventilating, I'm telling you. That's all I could do keep him falling out of the chair. And then... Later on, I heard the record, and the, the, the way they mixed it, the guitar wasn't up, because it was a duet with a voice. Oh. <laughs> so I said, oh... Uh, All that for nothing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but uh, I did it. Another time, I went into a session with Al Hurt, 12, 12 pieces, 15, I don't know, to big RCA studio here. And... Uh, First song up was Mission Impossible, and for a while I thought it was going to be Mission Impossible <laughs> because I was trying to count things: one, two, three, four, five; one, two, three, four, five. It did that for about thirty bars, and then it deviated from that, and I couldn't count it: one, two, three, four, five; one, two, three, four, five. So I just memorized pom boom pom pom pom, pom, pom and counted the bars till I got down to where it deviated and made it through that. And there was no overdubbing at that time. They didn't have the—if you missed up, it would have really been messed up. I don't know what they would have done. So I got through that. I think, well, I'm not going to faint yet, you know. But it was another one where it was—I mean, it's thrown at you. People don't realize you go in and it's cold turkey. You haven't heard the songs or everything. So, next song up was Promises, Promises, with all the different time changes that Burt Backrider, whoever did it, you know, even the intro had three or four time changes. We got through that and we got to, uh, oh, Taste of Honey. And I was thrilled. (laughs) (laughs) Four, four. Yeah, four, four. Yeah, I I may be able to make lunch after all.
2: (laughs) What about Lenny Bro, Harold? Was your, um, I know you were friends, right?
4: Well, we were friends. We were not great friends, like I was with Chet, because uh, I couldn't go all down to the alley and jam all night. And, mm-hmm. But uh, he's really undersung as a guitar player. I think he's marvelous, and he was. He and Chet were great friends. That's why I admire Chet. I sent Jerry Reed to him, and, and Chet didn't say, go a little old boy." He said, "Oh, I like that," and then they end up playing in the U.S. together. Lenny Bro was the same way. Became great friends with him, and he'd say, "Oh, this guy's the greatest guitar player in the world." Yeah. Heard him say that at one of the shows, you know,
3: mm-hmm.
4: they were playing a uh, duet or well solo duet, you know, instrumentals. He was always willing to give credit to uh, other guitar players. He walked in his office, probably the first thing he says, "Play me a lick," you know. <laughs> yeah, he was. Uh, he was a uh, he was a good person, you know, and he helped people, which I I really admired, you know. I mean, I even I've even played tire chains on a record, uh, record, you know, and Floyd Kramer played the hammer on Big Bad John. After an hour and a half or something, they go over to Floyd say, "We oh, don't need piano this. We need something like a minor's pick striking the coal." They took a uh, Big uh, mic uh, thing, and uh, he's, he's hitting it with a hammer. Chips are flying out of it. He's, so finally they put it up on a, a stand. Some way they got it on a mic stand, you know. And uh, he's hitting it like this, you know, pieces are of flying off. <laughs> and years later, I toured with Floyd, and we were playing in Virginia, and Jimmy Dean, uh, Floyd said, Hey, Jimmy Dean's coming over. Uh, come on in the dressing room when you get it over to the venue I said okay so I went in and uh, Jimmy was there and uh, I played him Big Bad John and so Jimmy came he uh, was introduced by Floyd and he introduced his wife and let her do a song and uh, Jimmy kind of took over for a while and he talked about said well I know that I'm the only guy that Floyd Kramer ever played hammer for <laughs> hammer ons hammer yeah <laughs> So you, you really try to do whatever they want you to do, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like Owen said, you stand on your head, do a few tricks like a dog, and then they don't like that one, so you roll over. <laughs> <laughs>
2: There's your advice for musicians <laughs> listening right there. From the...
4: Big
1: jump, big jump, big bad John, big jump, jump
2: anything else you want to talk about Harold?
4: well uh i can just give you a couple of things uh, a couple of quotes not for me i haven't come up with a quote yet but uh this friend of mine asked uh, les paul what advice would he give to young guitar players Mm. and Les said practice 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 there's always somebody better than you Mm. and then uh i love what chet said uh he said, if I don't practice one day, I know it. If I don't practice two days, you know it. If I don't practice three days, the world knows it. Mm. And I guess that's the way it goes, isn't it?
1: What
4: a lot of truth to that. I'm sorry? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, there care. is. It really is. It, yeah, it really is. But uh, I would say uh, playing all the different bands you can, because I was really lucky. Uh, I may not be the best guitar player, but I may be the most versatile guitar player. I played on Bunny Hop and the Hokey Pokey with Ray Anthony's big band. Mm -hmm. I played on uh, Papa John Gordy's Dixieland band playing banjo and ukulele on Honeymoon Feeling and uh, Ray Stevens' record of uh, uh, a variety of things. Sure. uh, You talked about the car, I mean the instruments. I was driving... Chevrolets, and it had a huge trunk. I had twelve instruments in there, and the amp in on the back seat. And when they went to the smaller size, I had to take a couple of instruments out because I mean we carried everything, you know.
2: Well, I remember how in this parking lot at the union years ago, I you had a Cadillac. <laughs> and I was helping you get stuff out the trunk, and I moved some jumper cables, and there was the, the six-string bass. And he said, "That's the bass I used on Pat's <laughs> I said, It doesn't even have a case. It was just it, it was is, just in the trunk, it, trunk it, museum. It,
4: it still doesn't have a case. <laughs> I still have it, and people really want to buy it. It and, should
2: be in the Smithsonian or the yeah, Country Music Hall of Fame at the least. You know, it's." you know I just left Andy's house he's got about eight empty cases sitting in his front room maybe he would give you one of those
4: it's a good start (laughs) (laughs) that's the empty ones Uh, Uh I I was doing an interview at RCA the other day of course uh, I felt kind of strange walking in there after all the grief they gave me you know but uh, went in there's two nice historians there and all of a sudden this guy comes up and he's the guy running RCA now, David Cobb. And uh, I guess that's the reason I was in there, because they were friends with him. But he wanted to interview me, too. I mean, it wasn't that obvious. But we got we were talking, you know, about just like we're talking now. And uh, he said, well, I don't let my guys use uh, chord seats. And I said, well, that's the way we started out. We didn't have chord seats on Patsy Klein's records. He said, no, if they can't memorize it in two and a half minutes, you know. And I wasn't going to debate him. (laughs) But when I became the leader on a lot of sessions, I found out I saved about 15 minutes if everybody was playing the same chords. (laughs) And back then, a guy would write a verse, and in the second verse, it would would be a different set of chords. And it actually saves you a lot of time uh, because you always want to go back and rehearse that funny spot where it was different from the first verse, you know. But uh, I didn't tell him, but I, I love the, uh, the chord seats, you know.
2: Who was the first sheets. person you ever saw use the number system, Now It was uh,
4: Neil Matthews. Uh, but Charlie and I, Charlie McCoy and I have a disagreement because I thought Neil there was—
1: Neil Matthews was one of the Jordanaires. Yeah,
4: okay, uh, We'd walk by, and there'd be this big, tall, yellow sheet of paper— and I thought I, was, I thought my memory was it was like Roman numerals one, two, two, one, I, you know three, three, IV, V, 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 v five. But Charlie had it in Arabic or something in his book. I talked to him about it. And I'm not sure. He was the first one that used mm-hmm. a number system. Then, but that was for the singers. And then one day I was a leader on a session at the Quonset Hut. And everything stops. And I'm looking around and see what's happening. Charlie's down on his hands and knees talking to Wayne Moss, one of the guitar players. And I go and see what's happening, you know. And uh, Wayne had a, a pad this big. And Charlie says, we uh, were writing uh, this down in numbers. I said, okay. And I walked off. And uh, Charlie was the first one that really introduced the number system, you know. Right. And people write it differently, and uh, let them write it whichever way is best for them to read it.
2: Well, I use it in New York. <laughs> I use it on, on Daryl's TV shows sometimes. So it's, the, guys, the guys are... Okay no, now. I mean, sometimes I, I will, but I, I use it if I have to cheat and learn stuff really quick. I still use it. It's just an ingenious system. It you actually know?
1: really works well.
4: Yeah. Oh, listen, it saves you time. And, and
2: I'll never get rid of these charts. I've had them for 20 years, Harold. <laughs> these are all... I've got so many everything look at you got Slim's more? old set list got- i've got slim's contract <laughs> he first gave me the union contract wow. <laughs> you know there's uh
4: well i have all the slim's charts at home here's, I've the, been here's, here's my t-
2: deal for jackpot nevada
4: oh wow
2: nice <laughs> i even have a little list where i had charged a toothbrush and something to my room because i it got lost or something and slim sent me a a, a bill for like Seven dollars for incidentals. <laughs> <I> saved that it, <laughs> <slim. laughs> Yeah, it's so it, great.
1: Actually, the, the, there is one more thing I'd like to sure. bring up. Harold is talking about how Chad Ekins helped so many people. Harold has helped a lot of people too. He, uh, I met Harold when I first moved to town, and he absolutely mentored me, helped me get gigs, taught me the ropes. Wow. I know he did that for a lot of other guys. He around.
2: tried to do it for me. I remember, Harold. I don't know if you remember. You tried to get me on this TV show here in Nashville. I was so green back then. But you, you, I really appreciate that. You know, and Andy. The reason I know you is because of Andy. You know. Well,
4: I thought I was Andy's mentor, but now he's my mentor. He's playing. He's tearing it up. He's playing better than anybody in Nashville. Then he's great. I mean, he's, he's a great he's, player. He's playing anything he wants to play with a beautiful tone beautiful tone but it's a great ear great ear
2: absolutely he's,
4: he's, he's getting with, uh, where he's like Hank Garland you play him a lick and he play it back at you <laughs> <laughs> that's what Chet said
2: <laughs> alright there you have it folks I'm sorry we got a little uh, cut off there it was a little abrupt um, Andy had to go to a recording session and uh, had a cable come unplugged or something happened but anyway that was what, what went down that day and thank you harold again for sitting down and chatting and andy and i hope you enjoyed this one as always i love your comments your ratings on itunes really enjoy that thank you so much hope you keep listening i'll keep doing it as long as you guys keep listening thanks for tuning in